0: You ever tried to carry on a conversation with somebody and you you know that they're not really listening to you? And I know if you have been a a married person at any point in your life you've had those experiences. And typically, now I have to without being too harsh, I have to admit that it's typically the guys who are reading the newspaper or watching television or whatever it may be, completely preoccupied with something else. And usually it's the wife that is talking. You know, sometimes we would consider it other things, lecturing, rambling, et cetera, but, nagging, so on. But, um, that, you know, I'm just giving the guy's perspective here. And so, you'll be honest a little bit. But, but they've got something important to say, you know. And, 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 and what, what, we, what we do is, uh-huh. Yeah, you just sit there with the clicker. There you go, or the newspaper, whatever it is. Uh huh. Right. the The wife could ask anything at all. Can I go buy a new car? Uh huh. Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, can I can I go shopping and you know and, and max out the credit card? All right. Go. Yeah. That's right. You know, and and we're not paying any attention whatsoever. A lot of times things go in one ear and out the other. Now. That's humorous until it gets to the point where there's something serious that needs to be discussed, and instead of viewing it as something serious that needs to be discussed, we still think it's rambling and nagging, whatever it may be. You know, we have that opinion. And and then we get to the point where that in one ear and out the other, not really paying attention, sort of escalates. And the wife finally figures it out. You're not listening at all to me, are you? All right, okay, uh uh-huh. You know, and all of a sudden, then it becomes a major issue. And and we have those times. and, And there are certain things that we miss because we don't pay attention. You know I've been there, and my wife thankfully is a, a great woman and she's not a, a nagging wife or anything like that. She doesn't just ramble on and on. I'm thankful that i that I've been blessed and of course, every man in this room who's married today would say the exact same thing if you want to go home happy today of course and so so anyway, none of the women in here we're talking about, of course, are the ramblers and naggers and all that no, no not at all and so so anyway, and of course, none of the guys in here are the, are the men who just are preoccupied with the remote or the paper. You know, we're talking about somebody else, of course. But, you know, there are times in life when if we pay attention, we'll, we'll get something. We'll understand it a little bit better. I think that what we're looking at today in the Scripture is one of those things that, by and large, in America in particular, and I think, unfortunately so, in American Christians, is often something that goes in one ear, and out the other it is something that we are sitting there with our newspaper the magazine the remote control doing our thing and saying yeah okay yeah that's that's good that's right I heard that before okay yeah absolutely and and we we close the newspaper the magazine turn off the television walk away and we're no different and so i I want to caution you as i have cautioned myself and tried to evaluate this week what is it that I need to not let go in one ear and out the other? Where do I need to kind of put a hand up here and, and say, you know what, there may be empty space there, but I'm going to do my best, you know, and, and I'm not going to let it just pass through because I really think that this is something today that we'll look at, not because of the incredible words that I have to say and the creative way that I'm going to present it. It's nothing to do with it. But it's everything to do with this is... I believe one of the things that if we will pay attention, we'll realize the incredible strangle that we are under uh, from, from the idea of what we'll look at of, of materialism and placing all of our trust in what we can see and what we have. And, and there's a, a great scripture that uh, you, you won't see on the screen. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and first Tim- and 2 Timothy are all about Paul helping Timothy, his understudy, understand how to be a pastor and what to do and how to minister to people and all that. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4, he, he really hammers Timothy on, you've got to get back to the Word of God. Just preach what God says. Just preach the Scripture. And he, and he, and he says in verse 16 of chapter 3 in 2 Timothy, he says, all Scripture is inspired by God. Some of you may say God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When he says that it's profitable, it means it's to our benefit. There's something good about it. There is something good and it pertains to things like teaching, helping us to know the truth. For rebuking, that that simply means that we may be wrong, we need somebody to tell us. You ever been there? You know what I'm talking about? You may not know that you're wrong, or you may know exactly that you're, that you're wrong, and all of a sudden you see it. And then he says also for correcting. That just means setting back up what's fallen over, putting it straight again. And then for training, helping us to know how to live in righteousness. And the, and the benefit of the Scripture, Paul says, is so that the man or the person of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. The purpose of understanding the Scripture and not letting it go in one ear and out the other is not so we'll have a head full of knowledge about here's what the Bible says and aren't I so smart, you know, because I I can say these words and I know these Scriptures and I've memorized them. The purpose is so that we may be complete. Not lacking anything and equipped for every good work. And so today as we look at the Scripture in Matthew chapter 6, the purpose... For some, it may be to teach us what is right. This is the truth. Here it is. For some, it may be to rebuke, to say, look, what you're doing is wrong. Stop. For others, it may be to correct. We've fallen in this area, helping to pick us back up. For others, it may be to train. Look, I want to know what the right thing is to do. Train me. Help me to know how to live. But for all of us, it's for the purpose that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so as we look at the Scripture today, we're going to be presented with a series of choices to make. And we then are are accountable, walking away, whether we accept or reject what the Scripture has to say, the teaching of Jesus. And this Scripture is a call, just as the whole Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5-7, through is a call for a radically different life not just a little bit different not just a little bit of fine tuning here or there but a radically different life some of us are living that radically different life and i just want to say keep going absolutely keep going for some of us we say well yeah i'm a little bit different but i you know radically that's 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 kind of on the edge there i'm not sure for some of us we need to be corrected set back up rebuked and so on and so as we approach this i'd like for you to join me just in a A short time of of prayer as we get going. And ask the Lord, what is it that you need to be accomplished in your life today? Is it teaching? Helping to know what's right, what's wrong? Is it rebuking to say, you know what, I'm heading down the wrong way. God, stop. Stop me right there. Or, Or is it correcting? You know, maybe I need to just kind of be set back up. I've fallen. Or maybe it's training in righteousness. But ultimately pray that God would complete us today, would help us to be effective and and equipped for every good work. So I'd like for you, if you would, whether you are a praying person or not, to simply close your eyes where you are. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand or say anything or pray out loud or anything like that. But just to focus for just a minute. And this may be the first time that you've prayed all week long, and that's okay. Start now. Asking God what it is. what What do you want from me? As we look at this scripture, God, what do you want to say? Do you want to teach me something? Do you need to, to, to tell me I've been wrong? God, do you need just to kind of set me back up on my feet? Lord, do you, do you need to train me in some way? God, how can I be made complete? Spend just a moment with God, opening yourself up to whatever he may have to say today through his word. And then I'll lead us in just a moment. God, have your way with us today. Teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us, complete us. Make us ready for everything that you have prepared for us. Help us to see the great profit, the great value in your word. And God, help us to walk away different. Enable us, Lord, to make the choice today to accept and receive and live out The teaching that Jesus gives in this passage of Scripture, we'll look at. It's in His name we pray, Amen. If you've got your Bible, I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter six. And we are in a series called "The Greatest Sermon Ever," and so you have for the last four weeks and now this week heard every single week the greatest sermon ever. And you can tell all your friends our our preacher is preaching every week the greatest sermon ever. They will be astonished and amazed. And then they'll be severely disappointed if they show up and see me because I cannot preach the greatest sermon ever. Obviously, what we're talking about is Matthew 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's known as, which is the greatest sermon ever. Now, it's debatable whether Jesus gave this all at once or whether this was a, a kind of a compilation of his teachings. Regardless, it is compiled, and Matthew wrote it, in three chapters, the absolute greatest sermon ever preached. And it hits on all kinds of different issues. But the one theme throughout is what we looked at at the very beginning. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. Then in verse 23 of Matthew 4, uh, Matthew records that Jesus was going through their towns and synagogues and teaching about the good news of the kingdom. And so the one theme through all of this is the kingdom of God. Jesus was the king setting down what the terms of his kingdom were going to be. Now, of course, we realize that the, the, the physical kingdom of Jesus is yet to come. He will one day return and rule here on earth, and then we'll all rule with him for eternity. But he is establishing at this point his spiritual kingdom. And so we looked at a few weeks ago, what are the terms? How do we know how to approach the king? We're invited into his kingdom. He wants us to be his children We've got to come to him on his terms. And then we looked at what, once we do that, once we are his children, once we're in his kingdom, what's the function? And our function is to be salt and light in the world. And then he challenged us in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 48, on are we going to be simply religious or devoted? And there's a huge difference. And then last week we looked at the possibility that there is hypocrisy that lies within each of us. There's a hypocrite within and that if we don't die to the desire for human approval and see God as the only spectator that matters, that, that we will in turn be doing things for the wrong reason. And we ultimately then remember that God is waiting to reward and he never misses an opportunity. And then we pick it up today in verse 19 of chapter 6. And it's here that Jesus begins to touch on some things that... We, as I mentioned before, have the tendency to let go in one ear and out the other because either we've heard this before or we just flat don't like it. Now, there, is, there are scriptures, I have to be honest with you, that are in the Bible, and I, I just wish weren't there because it challenges me. It, it lets me know, okay, you can't do this the way you want to. There are scriptures like that that I just think, God, yeah, you know what? That would be great if you just left that out. And some of us today are going to think, you know, I was doing okay Why did God have to put this stuff in there? I mean, you know, come on. Some of us are going to experience that today, but let's look at it. Verse 19, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And verse 21, probably familiar to many of us, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we see if you're following along on the back of your bulletin and you, you're a person who likes to take notes, then, then what you'll see is a series of choices. This first choice Jesus puts before us is a, a choice between two treasures. Now, it ought to be really easy. It ought to be easy to pick, well, if I'm being logical here, I'm not going to invest or choose to collect things that aren't going to last. I want to collect and to invest in the things that are going to last forever. It ought to be easy, but it's not. We know it's not because our world bombards us with all of these treasures here on earth. Now, when Jesus talks about... Don't collect for yourself treasures on earth. He's not forbidding possessions. I mean, the Bible recognizes the right to personal possessions over and over through the Old and New Testaments. So that's not what he's talking about. And he's not talking about that somehow that that spirituality is somehow received just because you may be financially strapped or because you may be poor or whatever. And he's not saying that spirituality is impossible if you are a rich person. That's not what he's talking about. So this has nothing to do with the fact that you may be rich, you may be poor, you may be somewhere in between. What he's saying is he's not forbidding possessions, but f- forbidding materialism. And materialism, simply defined, I looked it up, is the idea that we focus on and think that all that we see is all that there is. And all that we that, that exists is just what's before us. In a sense, only that is only the stuff that is material is real. Only the stuff that is material is real. Matters. This is it. This is all that we have. This is all we focus on. That's materialism. Certainly, we, we see that, and we can recognize that very easily in many people, but sometimes it's very subtle. And I think for both of those factions, either the people who it's obvious, you know what, they're pretty materialistic. All they care about is what they can get. Or for the people today who say, I'm not materialistic, and yet we'll see in a moment how we can dis- determine whether that applies to us or not and and we see uh, in these verses that nothing and Jesus speaking here of course in the first century in the ancient world, nothing was safe. I mean, there, there were moths that would come in and eat the clothes. Uh, wool was, was something that was valuable to them, and that's what they made a lot of their clothes out of. Moths would come in and eat it. Rust would destroy it. Thieves would break in and steal. And the words break in there literally mean to dig up. Sometimes people would bury their stuff so that people couldn't find it. Thieves would go through and dig up in their yard and stuff like that. I mean, it just sounds crazy, but that's what they did. And, and certainly, ultimately, we know that it, that it doesn't last. And, and in today's world, though, we think, that we are more secure than ever before. Maybe you have identity theft protection. Maybe you have FDIC insurance because you have deposited your money. Maybe you have an alarm system on your house. Maybe you have an alarm system on your car and you like to listen to the horn every time you set it. Or maybe you walk away like I do and you wait till somebody's right in front of it and you hit it just to watch them a little bit. You know, it's cruel, but I do that. And so, anyway, So don't walk in front of my car. But but we think that we are pretty secure, especially here in America. But do you realize that it may not be moth or rust or thieves, but it can be inflation. It can be devaluation. It can be an economic slump that steals our earthly treasure, that lowers the value of the dollar that we so value. And we realize that, you know what? We may have our home protected by ADT, security, or Houston security here around this area. But ultimately, we know that it's not going to last. In Psalm chapter 23, if you want to write this reference down, do so. Psalm chapter 23 gives us an idea of what Jesus here is talking about when he says, Don't store up treasures on earth. Because they're not going to last. They're not going to make it through eternity. And he says in, Psalm, in the psalmist writing in chapter 23, puts it this way, which I think is pretty interesting. <clears throat> and he says, wait a minute, not Psalm chapter 23... That's wrong. (laughs) What did I tell you? Did I tell you that this week was one of those? That Satan was working overtime, and I've typed in the wrong reference. Let me quote it for you. I know what it says. It says, don't wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches, for they are like a a bird that sprouts wings and flies away. Do you realize that, that the psalmist, even in the Old Testament, knew that Jesus is going to talk about this stuff, and it's going to make a difference. And here we are today looking at it. In the Old Testament and New Testament, Jesus, they all agree. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. The treasures in heaven that he talks about is doing anything that lasts for all eternity, investing in what what will have an effect for all eternity. What will last forever? Think about it. What's going to last forever? Uh, Unfortunately, this church building will not last Forever. Uh, The the parsonage across the street that my family gets to enjoy will not last forever. The car that you drove here in, or rode here in, will not last forever. The things that you have on today will not last forever. The things that will last forever are people, the church of Jesus Christ, not the church buildings, but the church itself, those people who are redeemed, those people who are saved, will last forever. You will last forever get a get a glimpse of that just for a second you're going to last forever somewhere as soon as you were born you were born into eternity to last forever in heaven or unfortunately for some to last forever in hell in a perpetual torment that will never end and that will never consume you but will always always be there you're going to last forever and so Jesus says, look, all the stuff that's going to decay and devalue and get hurt in an economic slump, all that stuff, that's not going to last forever. So as a result, invest in what's going to last, in people and so on. Why should we do that? Verse 21 says, well, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In a sense, X marks the spot. There it is. One of my favorite movies is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Some people, like my son, want to be Batman or Spider-Man or something like that. I want to be Indiana Jones. Uh, That's, if I could choose, and he's not really a superhero, but he ought to be. If I could choose anybody to be in the movies, I'd be Indiana Jones. I mean, he's absolutely incredible. He has no special powers, and yet he is the coolest guy ever in the movies. You know what I'm talking about? Harrison Ford, he's great. And so, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade... At the very beginning of the movie, he is teaching a class. He's, he's a, an archaeologist, anthropologist kind of guy, and he's teaching at the university. And he's writing some things down on the board, and he's teaching them all the principles of archaeology and so on. And he says to them, and he says, remember, X never, ever marks the spot. Well, fast forward a little bit in the movie, and you get to a point where he's looking for this buried treasure, so to speak, and he's inside a big library, and he's having to, to find out this, this code, in essence, of where something is located. And he begins to look around, and, and eventually he puts it together, and he sees something on the floor, and he runs up on the balcony, and he looks down, and there's this giant X. And he looks at himself, in essence, and he says, well, X marks the spot. You know, he just said X never, ever marks the spot, and all of a sudden, there it is, and sure enough, they begin to, to dig through that part of the floor, and they find what they're looking for. It is very clear that in this passage of Scripture, Jesus points to the fact that X marks the spot. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. There's two ways to look at this. One, you can say, well, if you find where somebody is putting their treasure, you're going to find where their heart already is to begin with. That's, that's what they really care about. That's what they, they, they want. Let me think about it. I'm not going to ask you to do this, but if we were to pull out our checkbooks today and look down the register and say, here's what I've spent my money on, it would be pretty easy to find out what we treasure. Pretty easy. The other way to look at it is to say, well, uh, your heart will always or almost always follow where your treasure goes. Think about it. You're going to invest in something, putting your money, your possessions, your time, your energy into something. Your heart is most likely going to follow that if it's not already there. And so Jesus says, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And where you invest your money, your time, and so on, either proves where your heart is or that's where your heart's going to go. And so the overarching principle here is this, that you are either investing for now, or you are investing for eternity. There's no third option. Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. You're going to do one or the other. So what do you do? Well, I think first, and and today will be a day of evaluation for many of us, evaluating. Which one are you investing in? Primarily. Which gets your attention? Which gets your focus? Which gets your check First. Is it now, or is it eternity? So evaluate that. Think about it very seriously. And we've already taken up the offering, so relax. We're not going to go around again. I'm not going to ask you for a certain amount of money or anything like that. This has nothing to do with it. And like I said, this is more about you being set free and me being set free from the power and the grip of materialism and being set free to be complete and equipped, like like Paul said to Timothy. So evaluate it. And, and then, after you evaluate it, do what Jesus says. Invest in what's going to last forever. And invest in your character, developing a Christian character. Invest in, in, in the fact that, that the knowledge of Jesus, the Bible says, the knowledge of God will last forever. Invest in, in getting more knowledge. Invest in actively trying to win and pursue people for Jesus through your prayers, through your witness. Invest in using your money for Christian causes, for things that are going to make a difference for all eternity. So it's a choice between two treasures, but there's another choice. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Now, this seems kind of confusing, and it's sort of like, Jesus, you know, you were on a roll there for just a second, and man, that verse 21 is really memorable, and I can understand that, and then... You get to verse, the end of verse 23. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Now understand that I'm not trying to be blasphemous toward the Lord here, but I'm just saying this can be a little bit confusing. What on earth is he talking about? The metaphor here that he uses about the eye and being the lamp for the body, and the Old Testament often refers to the eye and the heart of being synonymous. They're the same thing, and it's sort of what you've got your heart, what your eye is set on, your ambition, your ambition. Where are you headed in life? And that's what he's drawing the the idea toward here. So this is a choice between seeing and being blind and having vision and not having vision. And certainly just as our ability to see, our physical vision affects everything about our lives, certainly then our, our hypothetical vision, where we see ourselves going, what our mind and heart and eye is set on affects our whole life. Your ambition affects your whole life. Think about it. You are today what you set your heart on yesterday, years ago. You are today what, what maybe you just allowed yourself to drift toward. You had no ambition. You had no goal. You had no drive whatsoever. And the vision clouded, Jesus says here, by materialism, keeps us from knowing where we ought to go in life. We lose our sense of values. We lose our sense of direction. But godly ambition... Having an eye set, a heart set on what God wants is single-minded devotion. So what do we do? Well, we first evaluate our ambition. What are we we aiming toward? You know, the idea here of don't collect treasures on earth, you say, okay, that's great, but really, if we stayed on the same path that we're on right now, where would it take us? Now, think about it. You and your life, whatever stage of life you're in, whether you find yourself in the first third, the second third, the latter third, wherever you may think you are in life, if you stayed on the same path from now until you pass away, where are you headed? Where's it taking you? For some, you say, you know what, I, I really feel like I'm, I'm on the path that's going to lead to further godliness and godly progress. That's great. I'm not trying to say that nobody here is on the right path. I'm just saying evaluate it. Find out. And This certainly kind of relates back to the, the first one. You can find out which path you're on. Check in your register and your checkbook. Okay, I see, that's the path we're on. We spend a lot of money doing that. Or you maybe check the balance on your credit card and so on. And you've determined, okay, if we stay on that path, we're in trouble. What's the end result for you, though? What are your goals? What do you want to become? What, what kind of person do you want to be? The idea here is for us to set our sights on being the people that Jesus describes in Matthew 5 through 7. There's a college student who's come here quite a bit. <clears throat> He's a friend of mine. And I had the opportunity right before he left for the summer to have lunch with him. And I told him, we were kind of talking about church, and he enjoys being here and all of that. And I, I was describing for him where we were going to be this summer. I said, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Well, he is in a unique position of sort of becoming who God will, wants him to be. And he's very interested. He's a single guy, very interested in who he will be partnered with for the rest of his life. As you can well imagine, many of us have been there before. And so we began to talk about this. And I told him, I said, you know, I can't tell you everything that you're going to need to know, but I can tell you this. If you will do two things, if you will read Matthew 5 through 7 and become that guy, and if you will evaluate that girl based upon Matthew 5 through 7 and set your sights on that, it's going to work out. And be willing to make the decisions based upon that. The idea was from this. If you've got some goal, some vision, he had to set his mind, set his sight, set his eye on what he wanted to become and who he wanted to be with. And certainly he, he, he is not going to make every decision exactly right. But he, he sent me an email not too long ago and he said, hey, I've been reading Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And that girl that I've had my eye on, I've been kind of evaluating her that way. I don't know today, and that was a few weeks ago, I don't know today if he's still on that path. But once you begin to set a godly ambition for yourself, it is a very unique and very powerful thing. I've got the feeling that when he comes back in the fall, his life's going to be a little bit different than it was when he left. Not because I'm so great at, at advice and I'm some guru or something like that because he's poured himself into god's word and set his sights on becoming that kind of person and so chart a new course if need be maybe for your ambition decide what it will be set some goals and see what happens look at verse 24 another decision to make no one can be a slave of two masters Since either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot be slaves of God and money. So it's a choice between two masters. And this kind of lies behind the first two choices because if you're going to choose not to store up treasures on earth but treasures in heaven, and if you're going to choose to have a godly ambition, I want to become that kind of person, then ultimately you've made a choice between two masters. You're going to serve God, you're going to serve your stuff. The truth is that you will either be owned by God or by stuff. Neither one of them is a part-time job. Neither one. Now, we try to ignore or get around this reality. We focus on God sometimes on Sundays. And we say, well, that's the Lord's day, and I'll do for God that day what God needs me to do for Him. And I'll go to church, and I'll sing the songs, and I'll tolerate the preacher, and I'll shake a few hands, and I'll do all of this. And, and then the rest of the week, though, I, you know, I've got to live. I've got to get down to business. I mean, I've got to, you know. Uh, then, but then sometimes we spend maybe part of our time during the week thinking about some God stuff, and we say, well, yeah, okay, part-time and so on. But ultimately, the word here that's used is slave you cannot be a slave it says of two masters there's no slave that can be owned by two masters and the primary reason is this because one day they will make opposing demands and you will have to make a choice as to which one you will serve and which one you'll be owned by because when Jesus describes the fact that there are two different ways of looking at life To serve money and stuff is going to require of you something different than serving God, as we all well know. And so we cannot serve two masters. So what do we do? Well, as we've done with the other two, first evaluate. Which one really has your allegiance? Money and stuff? The things you can see? Or does God have your allegiance? You go back to the previous couple and we'll find out. Where are we spending our time, our money, our energy, and so on? What's our ambition? Well, we'll find out which one we're serving. If your allegiance is divided, then obviously we've got a major problem because those two masters, as I said, will make opposing demands. And so we've got to make a choice as to which one is going to own us and then leave the other one behind. And, and I want to be as sensitive as I can, and, and, but I, at the same time for myself and for us, I think for many of us, we need to simply draw a line in the sand and say, I'm either going all the way with God or I'm not going at all. Because we're doing ourselves no good. And the Bible talks about it over and over. If you're familiar with the Scripture, you know this. I'm not making this stuff up. That it does us no good. In fact, God says it makes him sick to go with God in a part-time fashion. it's not doing us any good. And I'm not trying to heap condemnation or anything like that. I'm just saying that that's the logical truth. It doesn't make any sense. So some of us today need to say, you know what? I'm either going with God all the way or forget it. I'm not, some of us need to make that choice. My prayer and my encouragement, and I beg you to make the choice to follow God all the way. You'll never regret it. You'll never regret what you've missed out on in life. You'll never regret it. Bible says we've got a home in heaven. God wants full life for us on earth and eternal life in heaven. You'll never regret it, but make a decision. We sometimes ride the fence so much trying to serve both of these masters, and God says it's impossible. So make a choice. What's going to own us? Who is going to own us? Give our complete trust to one or the other. That's what we're doing anyway. Trust God with all that you are. I beg of you. And then we come to verse 25. And Jesus rounds out this teaching by completing the thoughts here that he's introduced in the first few verses. Verse 25 says this, This is why I tell you. So all that leads to this. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You realize that millions of birds every year, fly into windows and kill themselves? Seriously. I'm a, Some of you are bird lovers, okay? But birds, they fly into windows and kill themselves. God cares about them. He feeds them. He gives them the ability to go out and harvest their food, and they don't have to store it up. If God cares about them, it says, aren't you worth more than they? They fly into windows and kill themselves. God says, I care about them. Aren't you worth more than they? Verse 27 Can any of you add a single cubit to his height or, or any length of span to your life, some versions say, by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for the idolaters? Eagerly seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. And Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that the truth? Jesus here is... Bringing us to the point where we've got to make a choice about what's going to consume us. You know that word worry there? If you think about it, you play it out. It's just being consumed by something. Some of us are worriers. And ultimately we say, ah, you know, i just kind of concerned. No, you're consumed by those things. I have those same tendencies. It runs in my family. I like to blame it on that, but unfortunately it's just me. You know, I, I, it runs in my family, I say. To be consumed by things. To worry. Think about it. When you worry, that's all you think about. That's all you try to manipulate. and Try to make sure this doesn't happen and that doesn't happen. And, and you stay up late at night and you make yourself sick and you do all those things. And Jesus says, don't worry. The truth is we're all consumed by something or someone. And he speaks against here being consumed by, t- by trying to take care of our own material security. You may say, well, that's not a real concern for me. I just let God provide for me, and he's good, and so on. And and yet, if you watch television at all, you are tempted at least to be consumed and preoccupied by by the welfare of your body. I mean, think about it. Look at the advertisements that you see on television, newspapers, magazines, wherever. It's all about taking care of your body. How to feed it, how to clothe it, how to entertain it, how to care for it, how to satisfy it, how to please it, how to warm it, how to cool it. All those things. It's all about you. It's all about me. And they want our money for it. You know, that's the way that it is. But it, we, are, we as a society are preoccupied with those things. Jesus doesn't despise those needs. He doesn't say, well, that's really not a need. You don't need to eat. You don't need to drink. I mean, look at me. I fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, that's not what he's saying. Hey, but he's saying, look, a preoccupation with those things is wrong. Jesus says, don't be preoccupied by that. Don't worry. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. It is a command from him. Don't worry about all that stuff. Don't be consumed by that. And he says it's unproductive anyway. You can't do anything to add to your life. You can't make yourself grow or add length to your life, he says in verse 27. He says, and it's unnecessary in verse 32, because God knows what you need anyway. And so he forbids worry. And this is probably one of those sins that Christians fall into quite often without knowing it or without labeling it as such. Well, I'm just a worry wart, and that's just me. Boy, I tell you what, this scripture, as I said, I deal with this sorts of thing. This scripture hit me upside the head this week when Jesus commands, don't worry. Worry goes against our Christian faith. You realize that it's contrary to to our Christian faith because it places trust in something other than God. We become manipulators and trusting of ourselves and doing all that we can do. And plus, it doesn't make any sense because God says each day is going to have enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to worry about itself. Most of the things... Think about it. Common sense-wise, most of the things that we worry about never happen. Know what I'm talking about? If you're a worrier, you're not going to nod your head real big because you don't want anybody to know. But, I'm, yeah, I'm with you. You know, we, 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 we worry about things that most of the time don't happen. And God says, I've called you to something higher, and here's what it is. He says, God's people are to be consumed by nothing but his kingdom and his righteousness. I've called you to something higher, He says, this stuff on earth, yeah, it may be important, but that's not all that there is. I've called you to something higher. He says, go after my kingdom and my righteousness. Now, we could leave it at that, and that could be a great churchy term, and we could walk away feeling Christian, but here's what that stuff means. To be consumed by God's kingdom is to desire his reign in every part, his rule in every part of your life, and to yield yourself completely and joyfully To what he wants to do in your home, in your family, in your marriage, at your job, the way you handle your employees, your business ethics, your checkbook, your tax returns, every single thing about you. God says that's where Jesus needs to reign. That's his kingdom, first and foremost in us. Some of us need to say, you know what, I need to submit to God and I've got some things I need to let him rule in. I know I do. And from there, it extends out to our immediate surroundings, our neighbors, our friends, our relatives, those people. We want his rule in their lives, and so we will do our best to evangelize and to reach them for Jesus. And ultimately, it spreads out to a global concern that is not just about us and ours, but about whoever and wherever God can lead us. And then he says his righteousness. God wants to make himself attractive through us. And he wants us to live in such a way and allow himself to live through us so that people will see us enjoying him and being blessed by him and be drawn and attracted to that. His righteousness should be attractive. So what do we do? We evaluate what consumes us, what gets our attention, our resources, our greatest concern. And then I believe that walking away today, many of us, myself included, need to realign our time, our thinking, our energy, our money, our resources, our families, our businesses. All the things that we do, realign those for maximum impact in the spiritual kingdom of God. As I said earlier, I think that this is an issue that has a stranglehold on America and I think on American Christians. I want to close with a scripture in James chapter 4 that you won't find on the screen behind me. And if you'd like to turn there, that's fine. But write down the reference maybe and go back and look at it. James here writing, and James is the brother of Jesus. And so they, I think he kind of likes Jesus a little bit. And so he talks a lot about the same kind of stuff that Jesus talks about. Hopefully he did as his brother. So verse 1 says this, James chapter 4, What is the source of the wars and the fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Do you you understand the rash of violence that happens in our country that happens nowhere else in the world? Nowhere else in the world do we have, do they have what we experience in America? Of the shootings and the rampages and so on, that people go, that doesn't happen elsewhere. Not like it happens in America. We murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. And then he says, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly. And here's why. So that you may spend it on your desires for pleasure. And tell me that's not America. Tell me that's not even American Christians to a certain extent. I'm not down on America. America. We just got to call it what it is. And he says, verse 4, adulterer says, Don't you know that friendship with the world or loving the things of the world, being focused on earthly treasure, is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Well, that's strong, but he wrote it. Don't get mad at me. Or do you think that it's without reason the Scripture says that the Spirit he has caused to live in us yearns jealously, but he gives greater grace, verse 6. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You may say, well, wow, okay. What do I do then? Therefore, verse 7, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. The Bible says this stuff is a big deal. And as a result, our attitude ought to be different toward it. We ought to repent. We ought to wash our hands of those things. We ought to mourn, the Bible says, over the sin of both our country, our, our, our American Christianity, and us So what will consume us? It's time to make a choice. It's time to break the cycle of materialism in our families, in our church, in our community, in our state, in our nation. But it starts with you and me. So invest in eternity. Make your ambition to be the person found in Matthew 5 through 7. Give your allegiance completely to God. Be consumed with his kingdom and his righteousness. Practically, how does that play out? Well, certainly sometimes some of us, in order to break the cycle of greed and materialism, need to give something. I'm not asking you to give it to me or necessarily even give it to the church. Just give something. Some of us need to go home today and just write a big old check to something and say, you know what? I'm... Whatever I I'm going to break it today. I'm not going to spend all this stuff on me. I'm not going to be consumed anymore by what I can get. Some of us need to give. And certainly some of us need to be obedient and give to the ministry of this church. And that's part of the deal too. But it goes beyond that. To an attitude of generosity, I'm going to give. Some of us need to simplify or downsize or eliminate some stuff we just don't need. I... I, I when I was studying the scripture this week, I went home. I was right in the middle of it. And I went home, and I thought, all right, what, I need to get rid of some stuff. What, what can I do? And I walked I, I around. I need to talk to Nancy. She was out of town this week, and I thought, I, can't, I don't need to do this without her because I'm going to get rid of a bunch of stuff. She's like, what did you do? You know, but, but I just thought, God, what can I do? How can I loosen the grip of materialism in my own heart? Because I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a person who everybody on the outside of the world thinks, oh, he's so great and successful, and God's looking at me saying, your heart's in the wrong place. I don't want to be that person. So maybe we need to do something practically. Maybe we need to set some goals in our lives. This is the person I want to be, and I'm going to move toward that. Maybe we need to set some giving goals or evangelism goals or something. The bottom line is that you and I are now accountable to the Scripture. And we will make a choice today to either receive it or to reject it. And I will make a choice walking away from here after having preached it. Am I going to live this out? Or am I going to be the same as when I walked up to the pulpit? And on the basis of this, uh, our ultimate accountability we know is before God and we are accountable not only on this, but above all, to, reset, to receive or to reject Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I'm not going to take for granted today that every single person in the room has already received him as your Savior. I'm not going to take for granted that everybody's already made that commitment. The Bible says there is one way for salvation, one way alone. The Bible says we all need salvation because we are all sinners and deserve eternal punishment in hell forever. It's what we deserve. The Bible's got good news. And it says even though we are sinners, Jesus died and paid the price for that. And you say, well, what do I do? How can I be saved? The Bible's very clear. It says repent. That means have your mind changed. Say, you know what? I don't want that stuff anymore. And trust in Jesus alone. And maybe for some of us today, that's the decision, the choice we need to make. But as we close today in a word of prayer, I want to challenge you not to leave without having made the choice as to what will consume you, what will get your trust. And Maybe you need to be bold enough that when we begin to sing, you say, you know what, I know that if I don't walk down that aisle and have him pray for me, or if I don't walk down that aisle and spend some time with the Lord in prayer, or if I don't go get somebody to say, you know what, we've got to break this in our lives, let's pray together. If I don't make it public in that way, I'm never going to live it publicly outside this building. I don't know what it is for you. But don't leave today without making that choice to be consumed by God's kingdom, to be consumed by His righteousness, to eliminate the grip that materialism has on us be happy to point you to some other resources. You say, okay, what what can I do from here? I'd be happy to help you out. I'd be happy to get them for you if you need them. Don't leave today without having received Jesus Christ first and foremost as your Lord and Savior, without having made the choice to follow him according to this scripture. Let's pray. God, we've asked you to teach us to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us, to complete us, to equip us. So, God, in this moment, when we are tempted to allow this to go in one ear and out the other, when we are tempted to give no credence whatsoever to your scripture. God, may you get a hold of our hearts and make us different. May we choose to be consumed by you and you alone may we view this world as our temporary home. As somewhere we're just passing through. But God, may we take advantage of all the opportunities we have through our family, through our work, whatever it is. To invest for eternity. To have a godly ambition. To serve you and you alone and to be consumed by your kingdom and your righteousness. Give us that heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and... Sing with us as we close.